Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday, midday, and... uh... I'm back from out of town, and let's get down to work. I think we, uh, I'm going to probably finish up today. You never know for sure. <laughs> the uh, bio of, uh, as I say, the greatest literature girl you've never heard of in the 20th century, and that was Shlomo Dabba Kahana, and um, this is being sponsored by our good friend now in the Midwest, Eric Smith in, in, uh, in Iowa. Thank you very much. Um, we're looking for sponsors for the rest of the week for the Parsha of Torah and all that. Uh, so you'll let me know, and uh, let me get down to business. We're talking about the Agarashat, Shlom Dabu Kahana, and I spend a lot of time in this because I think it, it, the, the Tkufa is very interesting, plus the crossing of boundaries. I mean, someone who was like really a Zionist, to be perfectly honest, although I don't know if we trumpeted it, uh, as we shall see, he, he kind of did, but nevertheless, he was accepted and, and uh, held in the highest regard in all circles, which means that in the best of possible worlds, Torah trumps the politics, you know what I mean? Now, this couldn't happen in Hungary, but it could happen in Poland, uh, sometimes even in Lithuania. It's a, that's, a, that's a talk to give him on the road, you know, if it's possible for Torah to trump politics. Uh, it's a very complex question, but in his case it was, so all the people we associate with the Aguda and all their Chaimaiz and Moshe Feinstein, all the rest, all help him out. Uh, and as you can see, based on what I tried to explain before, he emerged as the Gaion Agunas. Now, um, especially after the First World War, and remember, he cooperated very closely with Chaimaiz and these other people over there, I think, or Mayor Arik, whoever it was, all the biggies, the big, big biggies. So um, if you're talking about the 20s and 30s, you know, those... I don't know if the public knew about him outside of Poland, uh, outside of Warsaw, but, you know, the, the, the Rabbonim did, you know what I'm saying? Those, those who need to know, know. And as I said before, unfortunately, or whatever you want to call it, the 20s and 30s was a terrible time like Gabi Agunas. Because, first of all, you had the stuff from the First World War, as I tried to describe last time. And then you had, afterwards, this general phenomenon of people just abandoning their families and moving elsewhere. You know, it was a ton of people, even after the First World War, uh, although the U.S. shut down its uh, quotas, you know, in 1924, and other countries did the same. In spite of what I just said, there was a considerable amount of um, emigration from Poland and the Baltic states and places like that in the 20s and 30s, not in the huge proportions that had been prior to the First World War. If they would allow that, you wouldn't have the six million killed. They all would have run away to America, or a lot of them anyway. A lot, but um, still, there are plenty of people moving, and when I say people moved, you know, it includes, among other things, people who just, uh, what do you call it, or schmoes, you know, they just abandon their family, a guy's married, he moves, he says, I'll bring you over once I make some money in America, or Canada, or Brazil, or somewhere, so he never writes to him back, you never know where the guy is, meanwhile, he went over to the New World, or South Africa, and, you know, Australia, you know, it could be anywhere. And he marries somebody there. He, let's say he marries a Jew. So now he's got two families. One he talks about, the other one he doesn't talk about. 
And this was a terrible problem, obviously, from the Gunner perspective. And uh, to, to a certain degree, the rabbis were helpless. To a certain degree, they were not. So our hero was very much involved, obviously, in trying to be to do the part that they can do. And in my understanding, uh, which, as I always say, is all you ever get with me, uh, I think this experience uh, of dealing with Agunas on a mass scale, meaning not that you poskin one thing for 100 people, every case is unique, but that you deal with them thousands and thousands and thousands of cases. Think about what I just said, thousands of cases a year. If you do 1,000 cases a year or 2,000, you're talking about two or three a day. You, you get what I'm saying? It's not like you and I. These guys are in a different league, okay? In a day. So when you get to this kind of business, um, you start to have a large view, and you look, as far as I can tell, best I can tell, you develop this clolius type attitude, which means you look for clolium in terms of evidence and things like that to help out in the good cases to the degree you're able to. Uh, I repeat, Every case is specific, and you have to have a special hetter in each case. Of course, that goes without saying. Having said that, though, what's the local base then do here and there and the others? They might not be aware of this loophole or that one or, or something like this or this achornisha type sock or whatever. And remember, our hero had Shemus from Yitzchak Khan Inspector, but also afterwards in, in Warsaw and during the First World War, Chaim Meiser, so he was very tight with Chaim Meiser, even though one was in the Agoda and one was in the Mizrahi, sort of. Um, but Agona is Agona. She have nothing to do with politics, like I said before. And, you know, this is the good old world of yesteryear in which the, the poor lady comes to the court and comes to the rabbi say, here I am, what are you going to do with me? Are you going to ruin my life? No. You understand? It's not like an American court which you can't approach the judge. You know, they, they sit in a black room in a room. It's on purpose set up this way. And she have no personal contact with the judge and so forth and so on. I mean, there's a svar to that. But we've never had that in Jewish history. A dying is a dying, especially in the town. People can't believe me. It's a long-standing practice in Jewish history that, you know, if you have a case like I just described with a Guna situation, the girl or the lady or the father lady will come and sit in the living room and say, I'm not leaving here until you figure something out. But you can't just leave my daughter, you know, stuck and, and, and alone, right? Moreover, moreover, you're assuming that she's so from and she'll live the rest of her life, if necessary, alone. But in the 20s and 30s was a time which saw two, uh, what's the right word, two contradictory trends accelerating simultaneously in Eastern Europe, including in Poland and the Baltic states. And that is the from got firmer and the less from got less from, you know what I mean? In other words, there was a tremendous amount of breaking away from Yiddishkeit, a tremendous amount. Uh, just listen to, listen to Victor Miller's speeches, he likes to talk about that. Uh, but it's not false. On the other hand, you also have the development of what you and I would call the yeshivas, the day schools, the basiakos, and all that sort of business. That is true. So it's a, it's it's very interesting. So my point is like this: if I'm a dying and I tell a lady you can't get married or something like this, uh, listen. If if you can't, you can't. You know what I mean? In other words, if there's no possible loophole, then you can't. Uh, it's just sad, but. Um, but understand well, this lady might say like this, heck with everything, I'm going to go and marry whoever I want and heck with it. You know, I won't be from, I'll move somewhere else, well, I'll do whatever I want, right? I'll just give an example. I'll become a Bundist, a communist, this and the other. Then I don't give a darn what anybody thinks. 
legitimate, not legitimate. I'll get married in the state, you know, with the with, with a civil marriage. And who cares what these dumb old rabbis say? You know, you get you understand we're dealing you're dealing with that kind of messias. And yet at the same time you have these very firm women, which is a real tragedy. And you know, they're piously waiting for the husband and so on and so forth, and nothing ever happens because the guy's a schmo. He's living in Brooklyn or Chicago or something like that. He couldn't care less, you know. Does he have a guilty conscience? Not who knows? Who knows? So this is the real world, and therefore, um, plus in the 20s and 30s, you had a lot of people stuck behind the Soviet Union and so on and so forth. So you, um, so people who were at the top of the game, obviously were looking, you know, for for Klolem. Um, you know, Maim Shem Nosov, Trey Ruby, Ein Echad, and so forth, always based on the Talmudic principle, Isha Daika you know, she knows that if they get it wrong and the husband shows up, it's going to be bad news. But on the other hand, do you tell her, because we're afraid of that, you can't ever marry again, that is to say, somebody just Talmud like being Machmir, and saying a Machmir, I get it, but you're ruining somebody's life, so think it through before you make that judgment. That's what I mean when I say he was at the top of the game, because he, he obviously, if it's possible, you know, um, to, how should I put it, if it's possible to, uh, you know, uh, be mater, uh, then he's going to do it. So um, the 20s and 30s, there was a kind of a very interesting, um, what's the right word, prep school for the crisis that was going to come in the Second World War, except it had different characteristics. Um, let's move to that. By the late, uh, now, by the way, he was a player. If you look in the, in Yechiel Weinberg, what's it called? Sreed you know, with, with the whole question of stunning the animals. He's one of the people that weighs in. In other words, he, any of the big Shilas that was in the twenties and thirties, I mean, he, he's a player, you know, uh, here's a good one. What about a communist marriage? Somebody's married in Russia or divorced in Russia. What's the story with that? You know, these are new things. Let's put it this way. And you have a government. It's not just a question of of secular, um, you know, like civil marriage, you have an atheist government, you understand? So, notice, how does the halacha treat that? Um, it gets very tricky. Are you going to say, ain't on most of Bilas if the husband is a, is a Yevsekia, you remember the Jewish Communist Party? It's, you know, very tricky. So, he was in all these kind of questions, and others, and Talat Chalki Shochon, you know, I can't go through all of it, obviously. I'm just... Talking about the parts that uh, that he mentions. If you look in this new safer that I told you I got, you'll see the Asdalakalki Shulchanak and all kind of unusual, you know, questions and uh has to do with being in the, in the 20th century. You know, now you see in the 20th century. So uh, you know, he's he's got all that all that kind of business and um a lot of what, what can I tell you? You know, Gairus Psulim these are classical questions. You know, a guy gets married to a somebody's not Jewish. He did it wrong, and now she wants to convert. You know, these, like I say, were the real life business. You know, not the the, the uh, theoretical stuff. Okay. Now comes the late thirties, and of course, the war is on the horizon. Um, he was in Warsaw. He had a son, I think it was, uh, who was a Zionist, or you know, Mizrahi. And the son of Christ got married right around the time of the, just before the war broke out and made it to Palestine. He got one of those certificates. I guess if you were active in the religious Zionist movement, you had a better chance um, because, you know, the Sachnud had the uh, the certificates, the few that they were able to give out under the British. 
They had a limited number. And naturally, they want to bring people to Zion. If I was in charge of Sochnut, would I want to bring in Satmar? He'll go against me. Same way if Satmar was in control of significant certificates, they wouldn't let in any Mizrahi guy. You know, that, that, that's how it goes. So, uh, so this was the business. Uh, if I remember correctly, they were talking about him moving or something, but he didn't want to move. And the war broke out, as you know, in September of 39. So that means our hero would be 1860, so he'd be 70 years old. Okay, 1869, so 1939. He'd be a 70. And um, uh, so he's not a young man. And, of course, the if you know what happened, it was a blitzkrieg. The Germans invaded Poland without warning in early September and within a few weeks, they conquered the whole Poland, including Warsaw. There was like a siege of Warsaw and this and the other, but the bottom line is they took over Warsaw. So all of a sudden, 375,000 Jews find themselves mamish in the clutches of the Nazis, and most of them did not realize what a bad pickle they were in. The Jews in Poland, this is just a, fa a sad fact, the Jews in Poland, by and large, especially the from, poo-pooed the German anti-Semitism. They just simply didn't get it. And they saw it to be like the First World War, more or less. In the First World War, the Germans occupied Warsaw, occupied Poland. They were a little bit rough, but overall, you could get along with them. You could definitely survive. They just, I don't know why, but they simply didn't realize Hitler's got a different agenda. Okay? And, I mean, I do know why. You know, the, the agenda hadn't totally uh, crystallized yet, but it was going to crystallize very soon. But I would say from day one, they started... Uh, torturing Jews here and there, you know, randomly. The actual physical business of, um, you know, rounding everybody up and sending them to the extermination camp came a couple years later. But so then they were in ghettos and doing all kinds of bad things to them. But when the Germans invaded Poland, Eastern Europe in general, so they were moved by a whole bunch of different uh, prejudices, particularly an anti-from racism to, 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 to Germans, somebody who's dressed Hasidish or something like that, you know what I mean, with a kapota, with a beard, with the payas, they see a talus, that was like a red flag. You understand? They went nuts over this. And they tortured the people, I think you've seen photographs of this, and, you know, cut people's payas off or ripped them off. You know, they, in other words, they uh, were sadistic. I'm not, in other words, I'm speaking now totally separate from the extermination, which came a little bit later you know, the organized, complete extermination of everybody, which, like I say, they did in 42. Uh, you know, the Holocaust is a complex set of of events, and uh, I've talked about it before, you know, I think on Morgenthau, whenever, I don't want to cause it the whole thing over again. I'll simply say that in September, October, November, uh, December, January, you know, of late 39, early 40, they weren't going around and, and mass killing everybody, although here and there they didn't mind. But, um... They were rounding people up in different ghetto-type situations. And, you know, if, if, if you happen to run the wrong wrong day, the wrong time, meet the wrong person, the guy could just beat you up and kill you, kick you to death, uh, stab you. You know, after all, what, what are they going to do? You know, if a German goes and, and, and uh, you know, slices a Jew's ear off, what's going to happen to him? Nothing. You, you understand? So, in this context, they said before, when they came to Poland, they saw all these from Jews. Oh, that was like pouring gasoline on the fire. And they really had it out for the from Jews, 
who they viewed as a kind of human rats. Uh, the other Jews, the Germans viewed as trying to hide their rodent nature. But the Hasidic or Mamish, you know, full rodents. And this is exactly the um, propaganda films of Goebbels, the propaganda minister. He has, you could unfortunately can see it online. And you see the Jews, you know, together with the rats and things like that. So my point is, they went after Rabbonim. Um, and our hero, Shlomo Dabakanet, was one of the leading rabbis. And to them, he's like the chief rabbi of Warsaw. I mean, they don't know the difference between Vada Rabbonim, Avbez, and Rosh Bez. You know, these are, the, these are the main rabbis in Warsaw, which was not false. And so they came into his house after they took over uh, Warsaw, and they beat him up. So think about that. You're 70 years old and, and, and you're taking, a, you know, hit some rifle butts and who, knew, who the heck knows what they did. And yeah, I forget, there are all these stories, you know, he was hiding in a sukkah, I forget, whatever. Point is like this. It was a mistake to want to hang around there. And yet, and yet, what's interesting is that uh, he didn't want to leave the ship because he said, this is my flock. And, you know, like a Hanan Wasserman type thing, that the captain should be with the ship. And so forth. Um, what's interesting is that uh, the First World War, it, the Second World War, is, is very complicated. You know, in, in the first months, in September till May, let's say, September 39 till May of 40, when Hitler launched a blitzkrieg and took over France, um, he wanted to get a peace treaty. In other words, what he wanted to do was get away with it. What am I talking about? Hitler came to power in 1933. He took over the Rhineland and got away with it in 36, I think. He took over Austria and got away with it in 38. He took over Czechoslovakia in late 38, early 30, and then got away with it. So this made him drunk like a gambler, you know. And he figured he can hook up with Stalin, and they'll take over Poland. And who's going to go to war against both Russia and Germany, nobody, and therefore we can get away with taking over Poland. And therefore he wasn't pushing the idea of an extermination of the Jews at that particular moment. You know, he didn't want too bad publicity, get it? Um, he was a funny guy, Hitler, what can I tell you? And he was, you know, on the one hand he didn't give a darn about publicity, on the other hand he did. And therefore they weren't undertaking mass, you know, executions of the Jews. Later when he... When, when, when he was up in war against England, he saw there be no peace, and he went to war with Russia, he saw there be no peace. Then he freaked out and killed everybody, six million, as we know. So everything I'm talking about happens in those first months when the Germans, you know, were not 100% sure if they're going to be able to succeed in getting a, a, a peace, which they came close to getting. I just want you to know. Um, there were many in England and France, especially in England, who uh, wanted to cut a deal with Hitler. They said, listen, it's a bummer. He took over Poland, but it's not going to help uh, England to go war against Germany. It'll only help Russia and communism. It's a, it's a whole long parsha. Now they make movies about Churchill, all the rest of it. Correctly so. He's the one who blocked it. But, uh, you know, uh, that's the way it turned out in the end. But um, there were many who wanted to make some sort of a peace with uh, Hitler. And so it was in this environment that uh, if you got a uh, certificate to go to Palestine, something like that, 
the, the Germans will let you go. It, it sounds funny. That's what it is. Um, so here's our hero, who's 70 now, 71, and so forth. And you see Warsaw is getting worse every single day. That's the P.S. Center Rebbe, you know, keep reading all those drushes. In the beginning, he said it's not so bad. Then he said it's bad. Then he, after a while, he says, I can't explain, you know, the Hester Punim over here. It's beyond me. Even though he's a Hasidic optimist, you know, he said this is beyond me. Because things were like really, really bad. So our hero got out early. His son from Palestine somehow was able to get it, um, get him a certificate. And he and his wife made it right out of Warsaw. Maybe they had to sneak over someplace or other. I forget. You know, it could be that they, you know, that he disguised himself a little bit, and you know, to to get through from, I guess, it would be Poland into Hungary. But I mean, you could get to another country if you really had a visa to Palestine, because you're not staying. And it was true. And so maybe he went to Romania. I forget. You know, the countries bordering on Poland. But that's what he did. So it's like Uden Mutzelmeish. Uh, he and his wife were able, um, early in 40, before the uh, whole uh, invasion of France took place, when the Germans were like, iffy, 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 biffy. I think that's when the Gare Rebbe also got out. So uh, you see, it could be done. And um, the fix was in. And they, smug they, they, they were able to get him out of, of, of the clutches of the Germans. 70 years old as he was, him and his wife. And they made it to Israel. Isn't that something? They made it to Israel. Uh, legally. Now, in Israel, not only the Mizrahi party, the Rabbanim in general wanted him in the worst way. Because, and here we deal with rabbinic statesmanship, um, smart people could see, at least a year before, even two years, but certainly a year before World War One broke out. I mean, World War Two, excuse me, broke out. That a war is coming. You know, if you look back now in retrospect, and you look at the headlines of each month, you can see it's getting closer and closer to war. Um, that's what that's what it was, and you know, different people reacted in different ways, but the big rabbonim in uh, Eastern Europe and in Israel who had no idea of the Holocaust that was about to happen, nevertheless said, oh boy, here we go again, another World War I. Which means we're going to have a ton, a wave, a tidal wave of problems. And what are we going to do about it? So, um, where is it here? Uh, in my Zimmel's book, the, uh, he's very good about it. He has an excellent work. The, uh, Nazi Holocaust and Response Literature, whatever whatever the name is. Yeah. Here we go. Um, one second. Yeah, here it is. Um, listen to this. Uh, already in January 30 of 1939, Hitler made this speech where he said, if a war breaks out, we're going to kill all the Jews. That's a very famous speech. He's out in the who win, but the Jews won't. And uh, Rav Herzog, who was by then the chief rabbi in pa Palestine, who again was in the Mizrahi, but was in very close terms with all the Gedolim, especially behind Moser. Um, so listen to this. Rabbi Herzog, chief rabbi in Palestine, foresaw the great upheaval that would be caused were war to break out. So here we are, 10 months or 8 months, whatever, before the war started. In a letter dated 11th of May, 1939, addressed to Chaim Moser Grzynski in Vilna, 
Rav Herzog informs Rav Chaim Moser of an audience he is going to have with the Pope. Okay? And, um, and he continues his letter uh, with, with saying like this, I have a message, I'm reading an English translation, I don't have the Hebrew. You know, I always wanted to get, um, what do you call it? The um, Hechel Yitzchak, the Shalos and Shibas Hechel Yitzchak from Herzog, but I don't have it. I never, I, they never reprinted it for some reason. I don't know. Um, so I'm reading the English. I have a message. This is him writing to Chaim Meiser. I have a message from God to the famous Rav Chaim Meiser, etc., etc. Rosh Kavahag. The fermentation of war goes on, becomes stronger and stronger in the world. Although I hope God will deliver us from this destruction, which is liable to destroy the whole world, particularly Israel, which is oppressed, crushed, and broken. One must feel cause for anxiety, and even though Amish Shivan al nevertheless we must anticipate the uh, evil as far as we can concerning the Iguna of the uh, Iguna of the Benosi Israel, God forbid, which it concerns uh, tens of thousands of Benosi Israel. So, in other words, Chachamein Brosha, he already saw that a war is going to happen, and he's, of course, chief rabbi in Israel, but he knows he's one of the leading rabbonim. And he's writing to Rabbi Chaim Meiser, who was the leading rabbi, I guess you'd say, for the non-Hasidim. And he's saying, we better, you know, let's figure out now what can we do before anything happens, if possible, to minimize to whatever degree possible Agunah situations. And Rav Herzog then mentions a practice which has been carried out by Rabbi Malkiel, Levi of Lomja, first of all, well, that's the Divri Malkiel, you know, that, uh, and we're dealing, of course, with, you know, the Giti Mulchamo. The husband, before leaving the battle, should have an authorization written at his request by which he appoints each man living in his town or another town where he knows there are scribes and rabbis acquainted with the laws of divorce to write a get for the soldier's wife. Any two people could attest to get, and any one could be the husband's agent to give the get over to his wife. Furthermore, the husband authorizes the agent to act conditionally. Immediately, the husband goes out for battle. A get shall be written and signed by witnesses. The agent should hand it over to the wife with a tenai that if when two years have elapsed, she fulfilled a certain condition, thereafter she would be divorced from her wife to get taking place retroactively. So he's saying the Dibri Malkiel did this in the Russo-Japanese War in 1904. And he says, however, although this method could be employed at the time of the Russian-Japanese War, when the husband who left for battle, if he survived, did not return home until the end of the war, the position in the coming war Notice he's talking about World War II, which he sees around the corner, would be somewhat different. We know from experience, especially in England and France, during World War I, from which we have not recovered, that the government would grant all soldiers short leave when they return home, and that's to be like a, a David Bathsheba business, you know, with Uriachiti and all that, which is a major part of the Sugi over there, correct? Uh, great difficulties with regard to the bill of divorce might then arise. So in other words, if the husband writes the the, the get, get milchama and never comes back until, you know, later, or or simply doesn't come back, and that's one thing. But if he comes back, then you have the whole question whether it's bottle the, the thing. There was anyway. This is a letter he wrote to Chaim Meiser of Herzog in May of thirty nine. The reply was in fifteen November thirty nine. Now Chaim Meiser, you know, was in Vilna. Vilna was not occupied by the Germans, uh, not in his lifetime. Instead. Vilna was uh, taken over by Stalin, but then handed immediately over to Lithuania. So the bottom line is that in um, October, November, December, January, February, March, and April, and May, uh, Vilna was, so to speak, in a free country, was Lithuania, which for our purposes was, was, a, was a free country. 
Um, and so he's writing back to Rav Herzog in, in November of 39. He refers to exchange of telegrams concerning the yeshivas. He also mentions the plight of the yeshivas, which couldn't maintain themselves for all kinds of reasons. Okay? And uh, at the end of the letter, Chaim Meiser refers to Herzog's letter, which at the very beginning predicted war at the end of summer, and you were exactly right. As far as the get is concerned, and I'm reading what he says, Chaim Meiser had adopted a, a method practiced before. If the soldier came home, another arrangement was made before he left again. Um, so they did the same get Muhammad thing all over again. But here, no permission is given to make the matter public. Hence, we have found a means of informing the public, uh, whatever that means. And then in August 31, 1939, uh, Rav Herzog submitted a suggestion for authorizing a get along the lines we're talking about to the Council of the Chief Rabbi in Israel and Palestine. We hope and pray that the danger of World War passes, but it's the holy duty of our rabbis to go and figure this out, to do what we can for Benoist Yisrael, Etc. 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 Right? Etc. Etc. As 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 you can imagine. Um, now, uh, my point is like this: that uh, they could see the title. Nobody foresaw the Holocaust, but they could, you know, the killing of everybody. But they could foresee the terrible Andromusia that's going to be introduced by the scale of the war and the destruction, all the rest of it, and missing husbands and who the heck knows what. May I say that? Uh, Tens of thousands, you know, I might be wrong, but I might not be wrong. It could be a hundred or two hundred thousand, something like that. Jews in the Polish army were killed in World War II, uh, fighting in 1939. I mean, huge numbers. Uh, I have to look that up. But um, so if you have a, a soldier, a Jewish soldier in Polish army, he gets killed fighting the Germans already at the very beginning of the war and the body gets blown up by artillery. You know, what do you do with the wife? You, you know, those problems are already there. So our hero, more or less from day one in September, October of 39, November, is already dealing with Aguna cases within the context of the Warsaw Ghetto. You understand those people's husbands are missing and all the rest of it. And that's why I said he's already writing this beginnings of his famous Kuntras uh, Agunas, where he talks about all the different, I'll call them loopholes, you know what I mean, uh, things you can rely on, uh, which he witnessed with Chaim Meiser, with Yitzhak Lachonen, with uh, their Mayor Arik, and uh, their, the Kli Chemden, people like that. In other words, it's one thing to read something in a safer, but the second thing is, I saw people actually use this. You know? So, here's the funny thing. So he gets spirited out of Europe at the very beginning of the war, um, more or less, to Israel, to Yerushalayim. So, it always struck me funny that he was transferred him within a very short time from the most intensely Jewish city in Europe, where he lived in the middle of the Jewish neighborhood in Warsaw, you imagine how Jewish that was, to the closest thing to it in the world, which is the old city of Yerushalayim. That's what happened. Because he settled in Yerushalayim. And think about what I'm about to say. In the 1940s, during the war, where do you have a sizable community of Jews who go around with Shramel, Kapato, Peyes, old school, you know, totally Yiddish. I mean, where is that? Not in Europe. Hitler's killing them all. Not in America. It wasn't like that over here, except in very tiny ways. You know, a minion here, a shtibel there. But you go to Yerushalayim in Eretz Yisrael in the 1940s, 
It's like a certain bubble. You understand? I mean, let's think of think of the following. How did the Chazanish, for example, spend the Second World War? He was in B'nai Brak, in a very super from environment, ungarnished. Obviously, I'm not saying that they didn't care about what was going on in Europe. Of course they did. But I'm simply saying in terms of their lifestyle, every day you learned, you went to show, you did whatever you did, you know, life went regular. It's kind of weird that Palestine, which was under the British, was a quiet, peaceful place in the years 1939-1945. Um, prior to that, between 35, let's say, and 39, 36 and 39, Palestine was uh, in the in the big intifada in which the Palestinians, the Arabs, arose and terrorized everybody and life was a bummer and they're shooting at you everywhere and this and that and the other and the British had to send 50,000 British soldiers in and demand to crush it. I mean, the, and the British played rough, you know, like they went and wiped out whole towns and things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, people don't know. The British had to reconquer the Harabais because the Grand Mufti Jerusalem had set up you know, uh, rebel headquarters in the Harabai. So imagine if you're living in the old city, all the rest is not far away from you, is a major Arab military situation in which they're bombarding you. And remember, these are friends of Hitler. So uh, they totally agree with Hitler. After all, if Hitler wins, it's great for them. So in the years 36, 37, 38, 39, early 39, if you're worried about your personal security, you didn't want to live in Palestine. Uh, when people drove from Yerushalayim, to uh, Tel Aviv, let's say, for example, or the other way around, you had to take an armored bus with a British military escort. I mean, it wasn't push it. Uh, and then, in uh, March or so of 39, all of a sudden everything quieted down. It's funny. The British, first of all, gave in to the Palestinians, and they said, I'm not going to allow in large Jewish immigration anymore. It's called the White Paper. And second of all, the and by the way, the Palestinians, when they were attacking the British and the Jews, were also attacking each other. I mean, the Intifada was, among other things, a civil war between different clans of the Arabs. But now's not the time to go into that. Um, so when the Second World War started, the Arabs, who had just been crushed in Palestine, <coughs> militarily crushed by the British army, said, oh, um, Hitler is now at war. If he wins, well, you know, then, then we'll win automatically. If he wins the war, we'll get to kill all the Jews anyway. And so we don't have to lift a finger. And so for this funny reason, from 1939 to you it was actually safe to walk, I don't know, anywhere, but a lot of places in Eretz Israel and Palestine. And the Arabs weren't violent. Because they were just licking their chops and counting the days. Especially, especially, especially 39, 40, 41, and 42, when the Germans reached their maximum uh, limit, you know, and they got to uh, El Alamein. They almost took over Egypt. It's Rommel, right? The Desert Fox. So Rommel's armies almost beat the British. In the end, he did not. And, I mean, for a lot, a lot of people, it looked like they're going to take over all of Egypt because uh, they were not so far away from Alexandria, and then they'll take over the Suez Canal, and then they roll right into Palestine. And if they roll into Palestine, the, you know, the local Arabs will join them, and together they'll kill all the Jews. The Jews themselves were making in their pants, believe me, they didn't, you know, they were scared out of their minds. And uh, the Zionists, you know, were, were, were uh, trying to figure out, do you have a, 
a national redoubt? You know, do you have a Masada where you hold out and there's the last bullet? Or some of the Zionists said, we'll convince them we're not Jews, we're Hebrews. You know, that, <laughs> good luck on that. And uh, it was really scary. Now, after late 42, when it came 43, 44, and 45, so then it was clear that the British are going to win. And that was a different reason for not rising against them. So, whatever the external reasons are, if you lived in Israel, in, in Eretz Israel, in the British Mandate of Palestine, in the years 40 to 45, is a bubble. Everywhere else was violence, and your country, you know, was safe. Uh, Tel Aviv and Haifa were bombed a few times, a few times, by the Italians, believe it or not. Um, and some people were killed and all that, and that's not a joke. Uh, not Yerushalayim. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it, life is strange. So our hero goes from the middle of hell to the middle of heaven, so to speak. He He's transported from the Warsaw Ghetto in its early stages when people are dying from typhus and starvation, who knows what. He's whisked away to Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh, and was garnished. You know, Jewish life goes on. And not only Jewish life goes on, obviously there are plenty of non-from Jews in Israel. I get that. But there are plenty of from. And so you think of Meisharim and Silmer neighborhoods and the uh, the Rabbanut, of course, welcome him with open arms because they say, we, we need all the heavy hitters we can get. You know, help us out with the Aguna question. So him and Rav Herzog got very, very tight. Uh, understandably. Right? Understandably. And I would say in general, the... Uh, Chief Rabbinate of Israel, which has an official position, was set up in 1920, the time of Cook. The British government recognized it as an official institution. So they were in charge of such things as marriage and divorce, just as is the case in Israel today. It started under the British. So um, you need not just a rabbi, you need a gadol, Israel, you know, like halachic major experts to be in the base and I go to deal with all the hard questions of things like Agunas and Gittin and who knows what. And therefore they grabbed whoever they could. So uh, I know two big names. One is our hero, Shlom Khan, and the other one is uh, the Koma Vassar. You know, what's the name? Uh, Michelle Roth uh, from Galicia. These are two gigantic uh, post-skim. And, uh, you know, they said, you know, join us in, in dealing with all these Shilas. So, our hero ends up from, like I say, it's amazing, you know, from, from Warsaw Ghetto at the Jaws of Death to the old city. As a matter of fact, they made him, they gave him the position of Rav of the Iratika, of the Jewish Quarter, which didn't look as pretty as it looks today. You know, Israel gave it a facelift after 67, but it was a Jewish thick neighbor, the Arabs next door. And uh, may I say... That they, one of the reasons they they named him was uh, hopefully he'll be able to to draw people because already at that time, since the Arabs are literally next door, you know, if you go even today in the old city and you go to the Jewish Darova, next to the Rova, the Arabs, as you know. So, um, and there wasn't the Israeli army there, there was the British police, as good as they are, as bad as they are. And uh, during the Intifada in the late 30s, a lot of Jews moved out of the Rova because of, you know, you get shot at or stabbed or stuff like that. It wasn't safe.
uh, I'm asking you a question. Would you rather live in 1938, you know, uh, two blocks away from the Kotel, but with the Arabs all over the place and in in a hostile mood and rebellious mood, fighting the British and full of violence, or move to Rechavia? You know, you see what I'm saying? Shari Chesed was always surrounded by Jews. You know, that's what a lot of people did. So in order to be Mechazek, the old city, they made our hero, who is 71, 72, to be the Rav there, and he was he was the official Rabbi of the Shechuna until nineteen forty eight, till the, the till the Jordanians captured the city, the old city. So what a change of 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 scenery! Now, if you look at the uh, uh, old interviews he gives to the press when he arrives in Palestine, you see that he's full of bitterness, meaning I feel like I abandoned the ship, you know, uh, like. Like the Punovich said also, he said, you know, I say, uh, whatever the expression is. I say, you know, the captain's supposed to go down with the ship. Instead, I saved myself and the ship went down, which was nothing but the truth. Because all those people in Warsaw Ghetto got exterminated, you know, and I know it. You know, all the people he knew, all the people used to come for Shilas, all the people used to argue with each other in the different streets in Warsaw, the whole Jewish Warsaw was liquidated. I mean, you know and I know it. He didn't know it when he arrived in 40, but, you know, within 41, 42, 43, then they knew it, okay? Because I can tell you, by middle of 43, it was all over in Poland. You understand? They killed, you know, the Ruba, the Ruba, the Ruba. That's the tragedy of the Holocaust. So, remember, there was 3.3 million Jews in Poland before the war. Uh, and about 10% of that lived in Warsaw. So, uh, you know, he obviously had that as a wound, for the rest of his life, which makes sense, okay? And yet, at the same time, life is so strange, so he finds himself in Yerushalayim Kodesh, no less, uh, pushing the Kodesh part, and acting as the rub of the Shunah. and here i got to tell you something, uh, he spends, and, and he'll die in, in 53, so he's going to be there for 13 years, I guess. All right, think about that. And, um... It's really interesting to me that a guy was listening to this podcast, Mickey Rosenfeld's father-in-law, Mr. Prizer, who told me, he called me up, he sent me this wonderful photo of our hero, Shlomo Dabakana, giving a shear in the 40s, probably late 40s, for a couple people in the Shuna, including this American guy who would be... uh, Prizer Sr., his father, who, who told me was one of the all for the boss type proteges and things like that. Uh, so, what's the what's the right word? You know, uh, outside you hear the sword, meaning the Holocaust was raging. And you know, the Holocaust was not raging. You, you understand? It's, it's a weird kind of experience. The Holocaust was not raging. And, uh, and he's well aware of it. And one of the things he, he does, he starts to get a gun of Shilas, uh, I guess, in 44. That's when the Russians on the one side and the Americans and the British on the other side invaded Europe and started to push the Germans out. He started to get the beginnings of the problems. Now, I don't know how this would get to Eretz Yisrael, so that a lady would write, you know, my husband's missing, I'm Eretz Yisrael, but maybe it's from the Yaldei Tehran. You know, there were some people, not many, who could uh, get out. Uh, from the Holocaust for one screwball reason or another, not many. And um, you understand that this situation was uh, 
extraordinary. So he already writes his Kuntras Agunas, in which he uh, piles together all the, the um, what's the right word, all the coolest possible, so that the Rabbanim will be aware of it. And as soon as the war is over in 45, so he totally throws himself into this, and everybody in the world knew about this, meaning all the Misadre get and Paskening of Aguna uh, uh, questions. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not. When the war was over, in uh, Israel, of course, and in New York City, and in um, London, and in different places where the Jewish centers, I mean, they were dealing with Aguna questions, Yom Belayla. How many people got out of the camps? And she said, I don't know where my husband is, or he said, I don't know where my wife is. And they don't, right? They don't. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Me, myself, and I. I mean, my father... We saw this in the records. I spoke about a year ago. How would it work? My father was in the ghetto in Shavol till 44. Then the Germans moved them all out. And they sent him and his wife and daughter to Stutthof concentration camp. And then they sent him... All in 44. They sent him, but just him, to Dachau, which is on the other side of Germany. And, you know, he what's he, what happened to his wife and daughter? You don't know. Now, it turns out in the end they killed him, but I'm just saying, I, I don't know how he found out, but I'm just trying to show you an example. They were picked up through no fault of yours, and they're dumped in concentration camp A, and then in concentration camp B, and meanwhile the other family men were sent to who knows where, and who knows if they're shot or burned or this or that and the other, or maybe they survived in some way. So the, the chaos under Musa was extraordinary. Obviously... Our hero is in constant touch with, let's say, the Red Cross and the government institutions, because that's one of the things they already discovered after the First World War. Uh, you know, government statistics. Can you rely on them? This already, Hana is dealing with. You know, can you rely on a death certificate from the army and things like that? The Hassam Sofer, uh, plus, you know, the, the 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 whole question of if he's still alive, how come you haven't heard of him after a certain period of time? All this, all the nitty gritty stuff. I don't want really to get technical over here. I have a bunch of books on the subject. Actually, uh, some old ones and some good new ones that people have written. There's like a Mishnah Brewer now, and Hilkas Aguna just came out. I got his shops. He's, uh, I forget the title of it. And Mamish is a Mishnah Brewer. The guy really did his homework. But there are some golden oldies as well. And, um, and there are plenty of Rabbonim who in the DP camps were dealing with this Yom Valila. Um, if you want the names and all the rest in English, get a hold of the Zimmel's book that I mentioned before, which I think is called The Echo of the Holocaust in Rabbinic Literature, something like that. And that's an echo. I'll tell you the exact title. The Echo of the Nazi Holocaust in Rabbinic Literature is an excellent book. It's only published once, I believe, in 1977, but it's an excellent book, in my opinion. Uh, and you see, you know, this guy in the Bergen Bells in DP camp, and this one over here in Felderfing, and this one over here, and then and the Rabbanim in, in, in Switzerland, and they're trying their best. So in other words, let's put it this way. The Holocaust was one big tragedy, and now I'm talking about the tragedy of the survivors of the post-Holocaust, simply because they don't know if anybody's alive or dead, and what? how do you move on with your life? What do you do? Besides the psychological closure, which is no small thing, what do you do with the halachic closure? You get what I'm saying. And so... Uh, in his old age, because he's in the 70s, our hero is like, you know, what should I say, busier than ever because of the post-Holocaust messias of the Sagunas. And if you get this new book that they put out, 
I must say he did a, I mean, in my judgment he did a very good job this Nechamas uh, Shlomo and uh, it's by no means comprehensive I mean this guy dealt with over over a lifetime tens of thousands that's for sure they say hundreds of thousands I don't know about that but tens of thousands if you put in 50 years you know of Yom and Belayla, I mean, it's going to happen but the point is that they have a lot of these uh, Aguna type situations as as you can imagine and uh, and he's consulted by everybody, including Ramosha Feinstein, by the way. They have a correspondence here back and forth over them. And they agree on some things and they disagree on other things, as will be the type with Gedola Yisrael. And, uh, you know, always with big respect, and uh, uh, it goes without saying. You know, I'm looking just to open the page at random. Binyan Aguna, Edis Erkos, Edis Goya Masich Shalolofitumo. Not Masich Lofitumo, Shalolofitumo. You know, if a guy talks about. With with the intention with the shlol fitumah, then it's a problem. I think I mentioned to you, uh, where uh, you need kishiyesh beis edim based in shel gim lahater aguna. All these things are from late forties, early fifties. Uh, I'll tell you again: in New York City, the agudas rabbanim at that time had a full time bezna. I haven't noticed full time bezna that was you know met uh, you know at least five days a week. And uh, in New York, you know, in the Lower East Side, and uh, and they were—I'm going to say Matra are going to—they dealt with the Agona cases, you know, and they gave out the the certificates, to, the heterim to those they felt, you know, the right ones. We're talking when I say Agona Sarbon, we're talking Moshe Feinstein, Ralph Hankin, you know, people like that. So these are the biggies because who's going to do it if not them? You know, this is not for your local Orthodox rabbi. These are. Dvarim Ha'om Di Baruma Shalom, obviously. You know, you told me Israel Of course. On the other hand, you have the, 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 the horror of the Holocaust. And the fact that you have uh, live people now. And you know, think think of uh, uh, you know what I'm saying. So um, this is what we're dealing with. So he spends the rest of his last years. Now here's the the weird part. Not weird, but uh What's the expression? Yosef. He finally, fi- I'm sure, a guy like this figured, okay, I got out of Hitler and all the rest of it. I'm settling and spending the rest of my life. I'm in the 70s and 80s already. Spending the rest of my life in Yerushalayim, Yerat Kodesh, and in the most holy part of Yerushalayim, the Iratika, which is near the Kotel, etc., etc., etc. You know, you go daven every day. And believe me, when I say he was the Rav of the Shechuna, whatever they call it over there, he, he passed all the shiles. He gave a ton of shiurim in different types. This uh, picture that Mister Prize sent me is a great photo of that. But you know, in, let's put it this way: guys like this can give. I'm I'm serious now. They can give four or five shiurim a day, one in Suvis and another place in in in, in, in and another place in uh, you know another Masechta, and four or five shiurim at the same time. One in your day, one in Ebenezer, one in Chosha Mishpah. You know, you you get what I'm saying. Uh, so in that regard, he had a, his his years were full. Because he was doing what he wanted to do, what he had done in Warsaw, and yet in '47 came the Israel War of Independence, which from day one made living in the old city almost impossible, because the Jordanians, the Arabs, uh, before this were shooting. Uh, inside the Jews were shooting at the Arabs, also, by the way, um, from the Churva Shul. By the way, he was brought to be the rabbi in the Churva Shul when the Shul was falling apart. When I say falling apart, 
I don't mean physically, I mean falling apart. People were leaving, he didn't have a large minion. You go in the Churbashul today, you see pictures of the old days. Those are the old days, once upon a time. By the 40s, you know, people aren't walking to the old city and going through all the dangers of Davin there, unless you lived over there or something. So uh, he's in the middle of all this. And obviously, when 48 comes around, and uh, I think you know this, Jerusalem was besieged, right? Jerusalem was besieged, and uh, eventually the Jews lost the old city. The Jews inside the old city, the Haganah, had to surrender to the Arab Legion, and all the uh, Jewish inhabitants were evacuated uh, to the new city of Jerusalem. And our hero didn't wait that long. They got him out earlier, but in other words, you move a third time from Iratika to, I think, Sanhedrin or someplace like that, where he spent his last years, uh, you know, to dying in, in, in 53. Uh, Hanukkah time, I think, was in 53. Um, now, but even when he's in Sanhedrin, he's still on the highest council of the Rabbanut, you know, and he's still dealing with all these Agunah-type cases, plus other Shilas. So I don't know how long he had his Kaychus. I mean, let's put it this way. If he was born in 1869, then he was in his 80s, like 84, 85, something like that when he passed away. Uh, so I don't know if his health gave out. But for a long time he had it, and he continued to plug away. And um, and therefore he was one of the uh, the big shots, the big postkim on the Rabbanut. So, um, it's just interesting, you know, the way he, uh, you know, went out, so to speak, uh, doing what he wanted to do. Now, again, uh, he was at Sioni, especially once he moved to Israel. So, you know, the politics is already different. And he sided with Ruff Cook and Herzog type guys. And uh, not in the politics, but I, I, yeah, I have to take it back. He said halal on Yom Atzimut. You get it? You know, he did all that stuff. He did. Uh, in his opinion, this is something, you know, to, this is, you say, yahala for, with a bracha, the gansa business. And I forget, other things like that, if you get the um, the new edition that came out, they'll give you all this, uh, uh, all the Zionist stuff, you know, which, which is not false, okay? So, um, the bottom line is, that, you know, I think at the end he had, uh, you know, his, his health gave out and all that kind of business. But really, um, he was very active, I would say, you know, pretty much to the end of his life. So, uh, I'm sure that already as late as the early 50s, there were X number of Agunas that, uh, you know, were able to get a Hector because of him. Okay, and in the classic sense, the I think the Chabina Rav they have here said that you know he's Mr. Agona. Used to be, by that I mean that there, among other things, when you deal with Agona questions, since it's such a heavy responsibility, the consequences are so bad, so it's not enough to be halachically knowledgeable. You need to see out the Dishmai. Well, how do you do that? You know. In other words, halachically knowledgeable you can do by study. How do you get siyata deshmaya? The answer is, you don't get it. In other words, you can't get it. It's given to you. Right? It's 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 a mystical thing. And everybody said he's got the siyata deshmaya because I don't think 
uh, there were any foul-ups, even though he's mocked lots of agunas, he didn't have the nightmare case where one came back. Um, and that's why, even in Poland, Rabbanim himself, I guess he's the man, because uh, he's he's the man who, who uh, you know, uh, has this track record, and uh, the politics be put aside, he's the one you want to deal with, uh, when, when you're dealing with such with, with such heavy and consequential uh, questions, so uh, I'll say it again. That's what I mean when I say that I don't think most people have heard of him, except those that count heard of him. You know, Degris Moshe heard of him, you know, because he dealt with him, and uh, Rabbeinu in Switzerland uh, deals with him. You know, the what's it called, the Chalkas Yaakov, and those type of people, because they dealt with these heavy Shilas and. You know, they usually write like this. I'll give the hector if somebody else will join me. And so they, they all write like that. This is a, a, a classic example of that phenomenon. And uh, therefore, I'm glad I was able to bring it to your attention. So once again, I want to thank, today was Eric Smith from uh, the Midwest, from Iowa for uh, sponsoring. And uh, with that, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.